Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series called I Deserve It, a title package originally published by Life Church, we're going to look at the lives of four individuals who clearly deserve one thing, but the grace of God gives them another. So let's turn now to the second part of this series, I Deserve Condemnation, but Receive Mercy. I am thrilled that you're here uh, for this second part of the series called I Deserve It. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you or you want to pull out your phone, open your Bible app, I'll be in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is where I'm going to go. Uh, this is a story that was so important to the people who canonized Scripture that even though it wasn't originally included uh, when John put this together, they felt like it needed to be a part of the full story. It was a story that early Christians knew, and they felt like it really needed to be included in the canon. And so at that time when they canonized, they, they, or a few years before, they put this story in to make sure that it was a part of Scripture. And that's what I'm going to be looking at. It's a story of a woman who completely deserved condemnation. But in the context of her life, she didn't receive condemnation this day. Instead, she received mercy. She received an overwhelming amount of mercy, which on one end feels really great to us, but I think as we, any of us, read this story, we might ask the question, did she really get what she deserved in this case? Did she receive what she deserved? And, and I'm glad that we're asking that question because in this series, I want you and I to start really wrestling with the question of what it is we deserve. What do we deserve? And I, I said last week there are a couple things that I want to do throughout this series as we go through it. The first one is to honestly assess what it is that we deserve. Honestly. And the key word there is honestly assess what it is. Because we can oftentimes kind of identify something we think we deserve, but we're very quick to sort of trick ourselves or lie to ourselves about what it is that we deserve in life. And so I want to push us to a point where we honestly assess what it is that we do deserve. And then on the back side of it, I want to overcome the entitlement that we may have by encountering true freedom that comes with Christ. And last week, I spent a lot of time talking about that type of freedom because that type of freedom is different from the type of freedom that often is present in the world around us that we celebrate in our world. Jesus comes that we might be free, free indeed. But when he offers that freedom, it looks very, very different than the freedom that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis and that we might define in our world around us. And so we spent some time last week talking about that. But this week, honestly, let's go back to that for just a minute. We want to honestly assess what we deserve in life. And in the spirit of honesty, how many of you have ever been caught in the middle of something that you've done wrong? Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. All right. You've been caught in the middle of something that you did wrong. For those who didn't raise your hand, you're lying. I just caught you, right? Just caught you right in the middle of it. So now let's once again, how many has been caught in something you did wrong? Good, yeah, now we're, now we're more on the same page. That's good. We've all had those experiences, right, from a little child. One of the things my son loves to do, if you've got toddlers, you've probably experienced this song. He's like, sing this song to me, Daddy. Uh, and it's Johnny, Johnny. You guys know this song? Anybody heard this song? Am I just... Yes, Papa, eating sugar. No, Papa, telling lies. What? No, Papa, open your mouth. Ah, 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 right? It's this song about getting caught. And, and we, we kind of experienced that as a kid, right? You could, you could have chocolate smeared all over your face, and you're like, 
did you eat some chocolate? No, I did not eat chocolate. I have no idea. I just decided to bathe in it. I preferred that method instead of eating the chocolate. We get caught in lots of things. Sometimes it's lying. Sometimes it's stealing candy. Maybe we've been caught cheating on a test or gossiping or whatever it is. But you know, in my experience at least, I don't know if you guys would agree with this or not, there is no feeling quite like the feeling of knowing that you have broken a, or that you have committed a traffic violation and hearing that woo woo right behind you. Or if, especially if it's the middle of the night and you're not expecting anything and all of a sudden just this blinding light comes on behind you. There's something in my gut that turns over anytime. In fact, I was up in Saluda yesterday. I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong. I just got off the exit. But a Polk County Sheriff's deputy came flying up beside me. Woo woo! And I was like, <gasps> Just had this moment, I'm like, what have I done? What, is, what happened in my life? And I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, but this is an interesting reality for me because the cop could come up to my window in that moment and I would, he would ask me if I knew what I'd done and I'd be like, no, I absolutely know nothing. But my body would be telling me something different, right? Even when we are speeding, <coughs> excuse me, even if we are speeding or something like that, we could say out of our mouth, no, I, I wasn't, I had a cruise control on. But our body is telling us something different. And this is an important point to, to sort of recognize because in moments like this, when we are guilty, when we experience the guilt of doing something wrong and getting caught, our mouths may say something different, but our bodies know that we've been caught. Our bodies know. And in fact, no one else has to condemn us. We may be the very first ones to condemn ourselves in moments like that. We may be the very ones who hold this, this sort of you know, uh, brute honesty internally, even though we don't let it out in front of others. And it's important that we get to the point in our life where we have this brute honesty. And here's the reason. Because this brute honesty with ourselves is the first step towards real transformation. Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point down in Atlanta, he gave a talk a couple weeks back. And he said this beautiful line, which I've, I've put on, on the screen this morning. He says, you cannot lead yourself if you're lying to yourself. You cannot lead yourself to where you want to go to the trans transformation that you want in your life unless you are honest with yourself. So the question that we have to come up with first in dealing with what we deserve is, am I really being honest with myself? I mean, really. When it comes to a discussion about getting what we deserve, being honest is one of the most imperative things. Being honest about what our motivations are in life and in, in our surroundings. Being honest about what our shortcomings are and what our limitations are. We don't, we don't want to talk about what those are, but it's important that we're honest with ourselves about what is my limitation? What are my shortcomings in life? Being honest about those places where maybe we have drifted off of the right path. We just have to be honest with ourselves about all of those things. And I'm going to argue today that this level of honesty is most important because what you deserve in life is always grounded in who you serve. What you deserve in life is always going to be grounded in who you serve in life. These two, whether we like to admit it or not, always go together. There's an intimate relationship between the one you serve and that which you deserve. If you serve your self-interests, then you may deserve certain moments of internal satisfaction, but guess what you also deserve? You also deserve a lack of meaningful connection with other people, right? If you serve your family well, well, then you deserve the reward of family connection. But what you probably sacrifice in the middle of all that is a more deeper connection with friends. You might lose some of that connection because you've served one so well. And, you know, this always shocks us. <clears throat> 
when it comes to celebrities, but celebrities are excellent at demonstrating this for us because they've served a life of self-interest, a life that circles around them, and everything they do is to try and bolster that ego and kind of push it forward. And we think that, you know, they've got everything in their hands. They've got all the fame, the fortune, everything around them. They, they should be the happiest people in life. But ultimately, what they have chosen to serve is self. And self comes to an end very quickly in that environment. It disintegrates very quickly and very easily. And so when we see them slipping into depression or we see them slipping off from the limelight very quickly, it should make sense. Because what they have served results in what they deserve in life. And there's always this relationship. And we don't... We don't always kind of get it this way because for us, ultimately, we think of deserve as something like a reward or a punishment that's dished out to us, right? But if you look at the root of this word deserve, it actually comes from a Latin word, which means to serve well. And the idea here behind this word is that whatever you serve well will give you something. Sometimes it will be positive, sometimes it will be negative, but whatever you choose to serve well in life will result in you receiving something on the other side of it. So the question that naturally comes in that environment, well, is what do, we, what do we serve? What have we chosen to serve in life? Because whatever we have chosen to be our Lord and Master is the one who's dishing out the rewards and the punishments. It's the one who's pouring those things out from us. And in the, the story that we're looking at this morning from John chapter 8, this is about a woman who gets what she deserves when she lives into the culture and submits her life to the culture around her. Jesus is brought onto the scene of this story, and when he's brought into the scene, he starts to offer her a new master. He offers her another way to go, another possibility. And so let's just pick up this story right here in verse 2 of John chapter 8. It says in verse 2, At dawn he appeared again to them in the temple courts where all the people gathered around and he sat down to teach them. Imagine Jesus for just a minute is going where he would normally go on a Sunday morning or you know midweek, whatever it is. But he's teaching a small group Bible study. He's got this group of people around him and he's right in the temple courts. And so the woman is brought into the temple courts. It's not like the, 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 holy, the Pharisees or the holy men, they had to find Jesus. They weren't doing that. They were bringing this woman where she deserved to be on the other side of her crime. It just so happened that Jesus was in the midst of it. And so she deserved to be brought into this place because of the crime that she committed. She deserved to be brought into the temple courts to be humiliated in front of anyone and everyone who gathered there. It just so happened that Jesus was in this place. She was the daughter of Israel. She had submitted her, her life to the law. And now, according to this, the woman had been caught in adultery, right? In verse, in verse 3, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought a woman caught in adultery into the temple courts. They made her stand in front of the group. And because she had chosen to submit her life to the law, to this specific set of codes, when she violated those codes, she was getting what she deserved. That's what the law said. The law declared that this is what should happen to her, that she should be dragged into the courts to be judged in that environment and ultimately to be stoned, which is what they go on to suggest in the next few verses. In verse 4 and 5, we see the, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees start to speak to Jesus. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? 
They highlight what everyone in the crowd already knew, that according to the standard that this woman had chosen to live by and that everyone there had chosen to live by, she lived her life in service to the law. The law says this is what she deserves, and now she deserves to be stoned for her actions. But Jesus, his disciples, everyone who was gathering there, they knew that there was another motivation behind the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. There was something underneath their, uh, their, their questioning of Jesus. They knew, they knew that everyone there lived in service to this law. Everyone in that crowd lived under the weight of this master. They were in service to the very same law that this woman was. And it goes on to say that even, even though they came and they asked that question, that Jesus knew they weren't asking that question innocently. Verse 6 says they were using this question as a trap. Using this phrase right here as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But what Jesus does is he doesn't immediately respond to them. Instead, and some of you know this story already, Jesus bends down and starts writing on the ground with his finger. Now, there's, there's a pretty straightforward Greek word that's used for writing. It's the word that we get graphite from today. It's grapho. That's the word that's used. But this isn't grapho in, in the text right here. It's actually katagrapho. It's a combination of verb. So it's, it's, it's a preposition and a verb put together into one. And this means that Jesus actually bent down on the ground and he started writing against them for accusations that he was writing out. So he was writing against those who came before him. It's not a word that gets used too often, but it is used in this particular verse right here in this section. And we don't exactly know the content of what Jesus was writing when he wrote against them, but it seems pretty clear based on what, what John says here and the verb that he chooses to use that he was writing something against them. And you can sort of see this in the next verses if you keep looking at verse 7 and 8 here. It says, when they kept on questioning him, Jesus straightened up, he stood up from where he was, and he spoke to them. He said this, he said, let any one of you who is without sin Throw, be, be the first to throw the stone at her. And then again, he stoops down and he starts writing. Now, this time the verb switches. It's not katagrapho. I don't know what he's writing this time, but he's writing something else, and it's different than the first time he's writing. You know, the first time he might have been writing out a specific list of their sins. He might have just been writing out the law. He might have been writing out the penalty for sin in the world, whatever it may be. But as he's writing it that first time, it shifts just a little bit, and all he has to say is, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And presumably, they're standing there with this full list of accusations in front of them, and they feel exactly what they deserve. Jesus does something on the ground in that moment that sparks them to a moment of honesty within themselves where they no longer can lie about what they deserve, but they recognize that they too should be in the middle of that circle. They too should be in that space where, they are, that, where this woman is, and even though they've cast her there in that space, they're face to face with the penalty for their own sin, and Jesus just sort of stands back and waits. And I love the next verse, John chapter 8, verse 9. It says, at this moment, Jesus had stooped down again. He started writing, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. And he's very specific. He says, the older ones go first until only Jesus was left with the woman who was standing there. There's this, this weight of the infractions of the law in their life that starts to weigh them down. And interestingly enough, the longer the span of life, the more quickly you catch on 
to your dishonesty. The longer we live, we start to see. Oh, there's been many times where I may have done something but didn't get caught, or I may have said something but no one actually heard it. There could have been all these things, but the more life we live, the more opportunities we have to sort of live into these infractions. And the older ones first disappear, and then everyone disappears, and it's only Jesus standing there in that moment, standing in front of her after they've all walked away. There's something important about this moment in Scripture. The importance of this moment right here is that the law itself is the thing that fully exposes and condemns us all. The law itself is the thing that exposes every one of us in this room, everyone that has ever lived, everyone who stood in front of Jesus that day. No one can condemn another because we are all condemned under the weight of this master right here. And if we choose to live under this master, under this Lord, then we will all face the condemnation for that right there. Paul says this most clearly to the Roman church. He says it doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Gentile. In Romans chapter six, verse tw- uh, or Romans chapter three, verse twenty-three, he says, "For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." Doesn't matter who you are, we all fall under the weight of that. And so Jesus doesn't have to say anything in that moment. He just has to remind us of what we already know and push us to a point of being honest with ourselves about it. We know better than anyone, right? It's the moment the blue lights come on in my rearview mirror. I know I stand condemned. I just needed your lights to show me that I'm in violation of it. I just needed you to bring me to a point of brute honesty. And there's moments in our lives where we come to that space of brute honesty where we admit what we already know. There's something inside of us, and I believe it's the Spirit of God that convicts us and pulls us into that place that shows us that we're not quite in keeping with God's perfect law, that we stand already condemned under the weight of it. And so because of that, we're in no position to condemn others. But likewise... We may not be able to condemn others, but under the weight of this master, we can't relieve ourselves from the burden of sin either. On our own, there's no way for us to work out of it, to get out of it. And and so this woman who was kneeling still in front of Jesus would not be condemned by anyone else around her, but she could also not liberate herself from the self-condemnation. She felt it. She probably felt terrible for what she had done in that moment and all that she had faced. And it's at this point that Jesus turns back to her and he offers her a new master. He offers her a new way of life, a new way to go. He gives her an opportunity to serve this new master and to serve it well. This new master is mercy. No longer would she rest under the weight of the law which leads to condemnation, but she would rest under the mercy that comes from our everlasting Father. And after everyone leaves, Jesus straightened up again from bending over and he asked her as he looked at her bent on the ground, Woman, where are they at? Has no one around you condemned you? No one, sir, she said. In that moment, she felt the liberty. She felt the release as people moved away from her. She felt the condemnation start to leave. And as she's feeling that something different, Jesus is wanting to look at her and go, I know what that something is. That something is mercy. You're feeling the the first steps towards mercy. You're feeling this move. And, And honestly, she made the move first in this story. We read right over it, but what did she say to him? No, uh, No one what? Sir. No one, sir. Now, you know, you might think she's just being a good, polite southern woman, but that's not what she's doing. The word there for sir is kurios. It means Lord. In that moment, she recognized him 
as her Lord or Master. She said, no one, Lord. She took on in that moment right there when she looked at, at him a new master. And when she took on a new master, she would shift her allegiance to this new person, declare, her, declare him this new master in her life, and she would serve this new Lord from this moment or, on, onward. And because of that, she got something different. She got what she deserved under a new master, mercy. This master dishes out mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. This new master changes the rules of the game because this new master is not asking you for condemnation and death. He's not saying that this is what you deserve in your life, but you deserve mercy upon mercy. And when she acknowledged this Lord, he promised her this sort of new life. He said to her in response, neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to condemn you, Jesus says. Jesus declares at this point, I'm not here to condemn you. Go. But when you go, sin no more. Leave your life of sin. When you serve the law, you deserve condemnation under the law. But when you serve the risen Christ, you deserve the mercy that Christ has bought for all of us, has purchased for all of us. And he doesn't let us, he doesn't allow us to just live in a world apart from this righteousness. He just has a different starting point for how we will engage in this righteousness. He tells this woman, go and sin no more. Go and live a life that is free from sin. But when mercy is our anchor instead of the law, we find that there are life-giving qualities to holy living. We find excitement in living in the righteous way. When mercy is our starting point, we start to act in gratitude or joy. I had a beautiful illustration of this out of a, a, a Scandinavian dude years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago at this point. And he, he said to me in my life, he goes, Sam... I can't do his accent, I won't try it, but he, he's a big burly dude. And he, he looks at me and he goes, Sam, if, if God's grace is just the dog that's chasing after you on the street, the moment that you get away from the dog is the moment that you stop running towards the Father's house. You're out of the fear. You're out of the fear zone. You don't need to keep pursuing a positive life. You don't need to be, keep pursuing that journey home. He goes, but... But if instead of you running away from the dog out of fear, you start running towards your home because you know that your father who's been away for months and months and months or your mother who's been away for months and months and months is on the home porch waiting for you. That changes your motivation in running. It changes how you move forward in life. And this is the shift that Jesus is making for us. There's not, there's not a wild, rabid animal chasing us and we're fearful of our lives, and the moment that we seem to escape that, that impending death, we stop. No, 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 no. This is a father who is waiting for each of us on the front porch, waiting for us to run home into his embrace, to experience the mercy of God in this way. It's the difference between motivating our children out of fear or motivating them out of love and grace. The same action could occur. But there's a very different motivation and a starting point. And this is the new kingdom that Christ came to establish. So many of us are familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16. But, but the kingdom that God wanted to establish, Jesus more explicitly tells us about that kingdom in the verses that follow John chapter uh, 3, 16. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to what? Condemn. But to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We stand condemned already because the law 
is our master around us. We stand condemned under the weight of that, but the moment that we choose to place our faith in Christ, that shifts. We don't sit under the weight of condemnation anymore. We don't have to sit under that, but we get to experience the mercy that comes through Christ. And Christ came into the world for you and me to offer us this new opportunity, this new ruler, this new set of rules and expectations. And if you serve this new master, then what you deserve shifts. It changes over to something else. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news for those of us who have lived so many years under the weight of shame and guilt and condemnation. Jesus came to offer you and me mercy in the place of condemnation. He came to offer us mercy everlasting. Paul would further tell this to the church that met in Rome in, in, in chapter 8, verse 1, where he would say, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul knew this. Jesus tells us that this is the new kingdom that he's trying to establish. Paul lives into this reality and has to remind the Roman church of it over and over again that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. We find mercy in the arms of Jesus. And I love how Paul says it right here. He says, now, now there is no condemnation. Now, therefore, we need to hear that right now. It's not something that just happens years and years from now. It's not just when we cross over, but now, therefore. Not later, not after counseling, not after we prove ourselves, not after we do anything else, but now there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though the woman who sat in front of Jesus, according to the law, deserved condemnation, when he became her Lord, she deserved and received mercy. You don't have to, he says to her. You don't have to wear the cloak of guilt the rest of your life. You don't have to wear the scarlet letter on your chest. There is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. And even though you might here, you might be in this space where you say, no, I, I deserve condemnation. I deserve condemnation. I know what I've done. I don't need just the blue lights in my rearview mirror to tell me I I know it. I feel it. I want to remind you that he comes to give you mercy. As we submit ourselves to this Lord and Master, he gives you mercy. Mercy upon mercy. And he encourages us to live in a different way with the rest of the world. Even though we might say, I deserve to be condemned, he has come to give mercy. He didn't come to make you feel worse about your situation or what you're living in. He didn't come to demonstrate how bad off you are and how holy he is, even though that may be very true. He came into this space to show us that we can have better, or that we can have more. Right? We deserve more, not just better and better and better. We deserve more out of this life, and Christ comes to give us that more. And I really do believe that this takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of commitment from all of us. You know, to imagine that there can be something new for our life, that we can be different than what we are right now, that we can change habits and behaviors that we don't think we can change. I know it takes a lot, but this, this mercy that is new every single day, this, this is a lot. It is a lot that Jesus continues to pour on to us. And this is a hard lesson to live into because we always have this gut level response that says, but I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And it's because we've lived so long under the weight of this old master that we try to condemn ourselves over and over again. 
or on the flip side, we, we say that we've worked hard and we have this positive perspective. You know, I deserve the wealth. I deserve the fortune. I deserve the fame. I deserve all these things. We deserve it. We deserve it. We deserve it. But Jesus says, you don't just deserve better. You deserve more out of life. You deserve more in this world. But the only way to experience the more, the only way to make that choice to move towards that is to decide to serve the better master. To decide to live into a world where you can submit yourself fully to that master. You know, last week we looked a little bit, just very briefly, at this passage in John chapter 8, verse 36, where Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. What I didn't read to you was the passage that's just before it. It says in verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. But Jesus, at the end, where he's speaking about freedom, in verse 36, starts that conversation by talking about servitude in the other verses. It says, Jesus replied to those who were gathered there in verse 34, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the family. However, a son belongs in the house forever. A son or a daughter belongs in the family forever. Jesus is asking us to switch our masters. If you live in bondage to sin as a slave to sin, you have a different master. But if you choose to live into your God-given identity as a son or a daughter of God, you have a place with God forever. You have mercy that's everlasting. If you switch your masters, then you deserve a change as well. And this morning, this is the opportunity that lies before us all. I know that there's the temptation and the pull of various masters in our lives. I know that that's always going to be a part of our reality on this side of glory, but Jesus offers us the new mercy every single day. Where even if we are tempted by another master to go in this direction or to condemn ourselves or to fight for ourselves and to see if we can make it on our own, Jesus is always there. A gracious master ready to pull us back again. And so this morning as we close with one final song, I want you to quietly assess who's the master of your life right now. Who is it? It may be yourself. It may be, you know, things that seem positive in the world. Good goals, good expectations. But who is the master? And at the end of the day, is that master going to promise to you time and time again the mercy that our Heavenly Father offers to us. The place eternally that our Heavenly Father offers to us. And in the stillness of this moment and the quietness of this final song, I just want you to create an altar either right where you are. If you want to come to the altar and have a moment of prayer to just pray with God and to kind of connect back with God, I encourage you to do that, to, to make that move. But let's all make this final move together discern who that master is and where that master is taking us and what we truly deserve. Would you pray with me? God and Father of us all, there are so many times where we pull away from you in life. There really are 
so many masters in front of us that we could choose to serve in our lives. And at times we've done that. And we've seen how that has failed us. We rest under the weight of condemnation at times. We rest under the weight of failure, heartache, trouble, because we've chosen that path. This morning, God, I ask that you will start a work in us, just like you did for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were gathered around this woman. Start a work in us of honesty. Show us. Put on full display in front of us, God, exactly where the path that we've chosen to be on leads us. Spirit of God, you can do so much more in the hearts of men and women than I could ever do. So Spirit of God, I ask right now that you would speak to us. Speak somewhere deep inside of us and draw us to your presence. Draw us to your mercy. Help us to find that path of transformation and to live into it this day and every day. In Jesus' name.